Welcome to season three of the Jesus of Love podcast. I'm your host, Emily Mills. And I'm your other host, Brett Mills. We are founders, we're creatives, we're entrepreneurs, and we're activists. We're musicians, and we love Jesus. We've learned a lot serving the Jesus Said Love community, and this is the space we'll get to talk about. Ever learning, ever growing, ever loving. So come with us and explore how we can awaken hope and empower change together to create more space for love. Hey there, good looking. Well, hey there. What you got cooking? I know, it's dumb. Yes, that's an that's old an song, old, though, you know? That is an old, an old country, country song. song. I do know that. I know that very well. It's kind of patriarchal because it goes, hey, good looking, what you got cooking? How about mm. cooking something up for me? You're correct. It is. Look at that. Look at that, Brett Mills. Look at that awakening. The genius that comes through this mind is just never ceasing. Uh, I, just, <laughs> I didn't even think of that until right when I hit the record button. Yeah. What do you think that is, means? I think a lot, I think it's a sign, as music always is, it is denoting culture, and it's speaking to the times, and so that song was probably written in 1960s or 70s? What do you think, no, or is that it was, older uh, than that, 50s? That's uh, Junior. Um, Hank Williams, Junior? That's Hank Williams. Oh, His yeah, daddy. Hank Williams, yeah. So we're going to say 50s. How about Patriarchy that? running loose. Well, we're already off the uh, topic here. I know. You want to but, bring us back to center? Yeah, well, it kind of goes with what we're talking about, I think, a little bit in terms of where we come from. So you and I, um, we both come from uh, Texas. We are Texans through and through. And what we're going to be talking about today is culture. And we're going to be talking to a really special guest who is a uh, here on Zoom or Squadcast, whatever we're using, um, with us, who's coming all the way from Austin, Texas, which is right down the road. But we are super excited um, because she is really going to give us wisdom and insight on her new book. So I want you to welcome to the show our guest, Michelle Reyes. Did I say that correctly? Yes, you did, Michelle Reyes. Hello, Very it's good, good to be here. Thanks Yay. for having me. Michelle, welcome to the show. Your new book, Becoming All Things, is one that I was introduced to through a mutual friend through Instagram, and I'm so excited to learn from you because even on your Instagram page and your link tree, you have so many resources already for people to learn more about what is you know, not just uh, ethnic diversity, but what is cultural diversity and how does that impact mm-hmm. our churches and the kingdom? And so I, I can't wait to dive into this conversation with you. So tell us a little bit about who you are. Yeah, definitely. Well, again, thanks for having me. It's a joy to be here talking about a topic dear to my heart. Uh, so I am a bicultural, second-generation Indian-American woman, which is mm. there's a lot of terms there. Uh, and I, I, I'll unpack it because, you know, on the one hand, my last name is Reyes, and so mm. sometimes you know, people look at me and they assume I'm Latina. Mm-hmm. Um, my husband is second generation Mexican American, uh, or you know, sometimes people think I'm Turkish or Middle Eastern, or you know, fill in the blank. Um, but I'm bicultural, so that means that my mother is 100% ethnically Indian. Mm-hmm. My father 
blonde hair, blue eyes. He's of British and German heritage. So I hold within me two different narratives. I hold within me two different ethnic uh backgrounds, um, which is really interesting because my mother wasn't born in India. She was born and raised in Uganda, Africa, and she was, her great-great-grandparents were brought there as forced laborers Mm -hmm. by the British Empire to build the railroad in in Uganda, Um, which in many ways, the more we unpack the history of, of, of Forced laborers. We, you know, this is in many ways just another term for glorified slavery. Yeah. Uh, and and you know they stayed there long enough to settle down, have families, get married, and and uh, and so she was born and raised in an Indian village in Uganda, Africa, and then later had to flee under the dictatorship of President Idi Amin when he waged a genocide against the Indians in Uganda, as well as other minorities, fled as refugees, eventually made her way to the United States. Uh, my dad. He can trace his British heritage through the daughters of the American Revolution, um, potentially even to the Mayflower. And Mm. so within me, I hold Mm. both British and Indian history. Um, Within my identity is both the identity of the colonizer and the colonized, the oppressor and the oppressed. It's a very dizzying (laughs) uh, identity in some ways to have. Um, You know, I was born in the the States. I was was born in uh, South Carolina, but then grew up in in Minnesota. And um, I think what's and, and I'm second generation, meaning that my mother was the first generation to come to the United States, uh, and so and so I, I I was born here, so that's why I refer to myself as second generation. Um, but I mention that because uh, the 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 U.S. consensus, the 2020 U.S. consensus, just came out, uh, and what is fascinating is that the second largest racial group in the United States is simply identified as some other race, (laughs) which to me is, I think is such a a wonderful indication of where we are. Um, We have more bicultural and multicultural folks in this country than people who just simply identify with one culture. Um, And I think on the the one hand, that means we need to pay more attention to, to bicultural, multicultural folks, the fastest growing marriages in our country are bicultural marriages. Teenagers, you know, kids who are 15 or under, the majority of them are brown and bicultural or multicultural. Uh, And even, you know, in my own work, uh, my husband and I, we are co-church planters in Austin, Texas. That's where we live Mm -hmm. now. Uh, We lead a minority-led multicultural church called Hope Community Church. I also serve as the vice president of the Asian American Christian Collaborative. And and in both of those spaces, we do a lot of work with issues of race and Mm -hmm. culture and ethnicity. Um, But we really need to rethink conversations on race today Mm -hmm. uh, because we oftentimes we think about race in this black white Mm -hmm. divide Mm -hmm. uh, that when 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 there's problems of race in this country it's between white people and black people uh, and and what that does is it it excludes Asians Latinos from the table but it also has no place for bicultural and multicultural Mm -hmm. folks and so and and immigrants as as well and so um I really do believe that as we move forward in in pursuing productive, healthy conversations, trying to connect across the divide in terms of race, we need bicultural, multicultural folks uh, at the table. And that's not just some plug for like why you should listen to me. I think that's that's just a reality of of, yeah. of, of who our neighbors are, who are congregate, you know, the people yeah. that you're rubbing shoulders with at church, the people in your grocery store. A lot of them are going to be bicultural, multicultural folks. 
That's amazing. I, you know, I think back to when I started doing a little deeper work um, on the issue of anti-racism and what being an ally would look like, especially as a white woman and how much of that had been hijacked even by um, white voices and white saviorism and all this. And I think Lisa Sharon Harper was one of the first that I'd heard of and and found and started learning. And, And she was one of the first that I think I heard talking about how white isn't a race. And it was the first time that I rethought and she talked about the census and she talked about, do you know where you come from? If you identify Mm -hmm. as white, do you really know who you are and where your roots are? And that's what inspired me to do deeper work with my lineage and to do ancestry.com to, to, to learn of my heritage because um, up until then, white had only been a race to me. Yeah. That's and, so good. And it was important to deconstruct that and replace that with a, a truer understanding. Um, it is disappointing sometimes to see even still on, you know, hospital, you know, what race are you white? It, it is, it is kind of like when we know that's not a race, um, why are we still using that language? But maybe some people, maybe it's yes. because not everybody believes that or, or sees the value in it. I'm not sure. When did yeah. you first start really unpacking or, or experiencing? You mentioned just that tension that you lived with. Was it something growing up that was palpable in your home? Was it something that you experienced at school? Um, yeah, what did that feel like and when did that kind of awaken in you? For sure. Yeah, well, to go back to uh, your other comment, Emily, growing up for me, I always just checked the box other, uh, mm. you know, in, in terms of forms and, and, and mm-hmm. consensus and things like that because I I didn't fit into any of those strict categories. But always checking other does impact (laughs) your own understanding of self-identity because it was was like that question of what am I you know uh and and when I when I'm with uh you know because I grew up in a predominantly white Scandinavian community so like all of my classmates were blonde haired blue eyed like I stuck out um in in all the ways uh I was too brown for my white peers uh but within you know, traditional Indian communities, first generation immigrants, um, you know, I was also not Indian enough for them. I was, I was too white to be brown. And so that constant question is something that uh, folks like me grow up with asking. It's like, what am I? Mm -hmm. And then I think when we grow up as adults, and then people are asking us, what are you? Mm. <laughs> it like, it triggers all of this, this pain and confusion, because we're like, that's the question we're trying to ask ourselves. And so mm. on, on, on a side note, I do encourage folks, um, and I, I know, so often, it's, it's well meaning to ask that question, what are you <laughs> like, mm. people are not asking it maliciously by any means. Uh, but it, it, it brings up a lot of emotions in the person they're they're they're, they're talking to, and I, I, so I think asking a question like "What is your story?" Yeah. is a much more honoring and positive uh, question that allows people to just be yeah. a unique individual, and they don't have to like try to fit themselves into categories. Um, in terms of the actual question that you asked, Emily, you know, I was very cognizant 
from a young age of my skin color. I think, you know, the majority of black and brown folks that you talk to, they they knew from a very early age that they were black or brown, you know, like you talk to white kids and they're like, I don't know what my ethnicity is. I don't know what my culture is. Uh, black and brown kids are very cognizant That's of right. that. Even when my two-year-old was learning colors, mm. uh, my kids are now six and three, but my oldest, when he was two, we were learning colors and I was asking him to like point, okay, find something that's blue, find something that's green. Mm. Uh, And he's pointing to his truck and to his ball. And I was like, find something that's brown. And he pointed at me. Mm. (laughs) It was like my two-year-old like sees color. Um, And, you know, part of, part of my story is, is racial bullying. Um, That's something that I've tried to be more open about, um, especially in writing my book is, is Mm -hmm. verbal and physical bullying is part of my journey. Um, which I think is probably why I, I've grown up to have the passions that I have in terms of pursuing justice, yeah. um, kind of you know fighting the bullies of this world. I think so much of that can be <laughs> localized from from my childhood. But um, growing up, I couldn't have explained to you. Oh mm-hmm. yes, these are cultural and racial dynamics. The reasons why my classmates are making fun of me or not. Um, sitting at the cafeteria table with me or, or all the things is because of cultural dynamics. Mm-hmm, I just mm-hmm. I just thought it was uncool. I just thought sure. I must not be wearing the right clothes. I must not be doing my hair the way everyone else is. I must I must not be saying the right things. I just thought I was a really uncool kid. Um and it wasn't until college and post college that I was like <laughs> there, there was more going on there yeah. um and 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 so yeah what is so that's the long long answer is is i was very aware of of my skin color and my ethnic identity um from from childhood what where did faith intersect that or your story in particular was that in adulthood was it childhood how was what was your introduction to faith like did you grow up in a believing home Mm-hmm. I did, yeah. I grew up in a believing home, attended a Northern Baptist church. Um, I have that typical story where it was probably around age four that I accepted Jesus in Sunday school. Um, and I've always grown up believing in Jesus, loving Jesus. Um, you know, I grew up every day coming downstairs to my mom praying um, mm-hmm. and being Indian. Uh, she grew up. She actually grew up Hindu and then converted to Christianity when she married my dad. Uh, but she kind of reinscribed some of the Hindu practices that she had uh, done growing up and now in worship to God. And so yeah. even just if you think about all the yoga poses that people oh, do now, I'm like the bit. child's pose, uh, totally. that's a prayer posture. That's mm-hmm. a that's a posture of, of prayer to the gods. Right. Uh, but every morning I would come downstairs, my mother would be in that posture praying and and just um taught me at a very young age the importance of faith uh in our lives to start the morning off in in prayer Mm -hmm. to god um and i really do believe that our posture of our bodies Mm -hmm. like being on our knees um actually being crouched down on the ground um i mean that really is if you think about it that those are the ancient practices of prayer those are many ways that the global church prays today and i think it's 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 good for the North American Evangelical Church to learn some of these practices, yeah. Um, but yeah, so That's so amazing. definitely grew up as you know in in a Christian home, which I'm grateful for. So was Jesus? Because it's so fascinating to me because I 
I grew up in a, a, you said Baptist tradition. I grew up in a Baptist. Mine was Southern Baptist. Yours was Northern Baptist. I'm not sure which is more religious and strict, but I'm sure they both were pretty. If you grew up in Minnesota, you know, Brett and I, um, in our early days, did some traveling as worship leaders. And we had a youth conference call us from Ohio, and we had never done an event in Ohio. And it was the most... And nor have we done one since. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that says everything. (laughs) It It was very white. You know, it was it was so white. Everything was so so white. Even the food that we ate was just very white. Everything mm-hmm. had white gravy on it. Um, there was a lot of noodles and cream white of mushroom soup. Cream of mushroom ranch dressing. I mean, yeah, and so you know, it was funny for us because in the South there is more diversity um, in the Southern states because of our history with slavery. And it seemed like in these pockets, I just wonder for you, I mean, did you go to school with African-American kids? You said you were one of the only minorities. So was it literally like white country, like Scandinavian, white, and then you? And then me. Well, well my mom, my sister, and me. Uh, we, I was, yeah, and so that's part of my story is I was like literally the, besides my sister, the only brown-skinned kid in our school there was no african americans there was no latinos there was uh-huh. no native americans there was no other asians it was just uh-huh. us uh so we stuck out in every way possible and this is like early 90s this is before the vegan trends of indian food nobody knew what chicken tikka masala right. was right like i'm bringing that totally. to school and people are like calling that like vomit right like yeah i had that experience that i think that many asian, asian first uh-huh. second gen and asians have had were like Nobody wants to sit by you at the at, at the cafeteria yeah. table because of your homemade uh, food. So, um, and, and you know, I grew up Christian school and church, and and all of my children's Bibles uh, had white Jesus. Okay, fact, that's what I was going to ask. Everybody was white. Yes. the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Egyptians, <laughs> like everyone was white. Uh, and and you know, Walter Solomon's like the portrait of Jesus is like uh-huh. he's got this candescent glow, right. fair skin, blue eyes looking right. up in the sky. That was in our church. That was in our school. Yeah. And so, uh, I. As much as I grew up with a love for Jesus, my understanding was that Jesus was white mm-hmm. and that he, even though I did believe in, in the passages like in Hebrews where that, you know, we have a high priest who identifies mm-hmm. with our struggles, like I, I never was able to make that connection that he actually understood my racial struggles and my cultural yeah. struggles. Um, and I really wish that I had known as a child that, that Jesus was a brown-skinned mm. Jewish man. Mm. And not not only that, because we don't talk about that enough, but like if you look at Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy, mm. Jesus has a multi-ethnic heritage. You know, if you look at the women, right. uh, you know, Tamar, Ruth, um, and, and, and others that are mentioned, that he has Canaanite heritage, um, right. Hittite heritage, Moabite. So he's multi-ethnic. He's not yes. just Jewish. He's multi-ethnic. And he has a multi-ethnic ministry, which is why in the book of Matthew, for example, Jesus pursues Canaanites. Matthew 15, he goes mm. to Tyre and Sidon and actually like reaches out to a Canaanite woman. Um, 
So Jesus is multicultural. I love that. <laughs> you know, and then you think about some of the racial pains that he he receives, even when he's calling the disciples, and one of them is like, "What good comes out of Nazareth?" Right? Yes. Like these are racial slurs. Um, the the Pharisees are are, are calling him a Samaritan. That's a mm. racial slur. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wish I had known as a, as a as a kid, as a teenager growing up, that Jesus could identify with me in those specific pains because he experienced them as well in his life. At what point did you make that connection? Within the last 10 years. Okay, yeah. (laughs) In my own cultural identity development, uh, in my own uh, journey to to leaning back into who I am uh, as an Indian American woman, celebrating that, the more I've Mm. diversified my bookshelves, um, you know, reading books like J. Daniel Hayes, The Theology Mm. of Race, uh, Jarvis Williams, you Mm. know, Redemptive Kingdom Diversity, sitting more under the teaching of of global theologians and pastors and realizing, wow, there was so much I wasn't taught. (laughs) Uh, And that's not, I want to say, I come, so my background is Germanic studies. I have a PhD in, in German literature. So wow. I began in the academy teaching. My introduction to the world of justice, mm. biblical justice, was through the reformers, uh, mm. through reading the, the original mm-hmm. letters and works of Martin Luther. Uh-huh. Um, and I'm forever grateful for that. There's a yeah. ton of things that we need to critique about the Reformation, a, yeah. a ton of things about Western theology that yeah. that need to be confronted with. But the reformers were onto something. Mm. You know, Martin Luther calling out indulgences, calling mm. out the Pope. I mean, that's, if you want to talk about railing against systemic injustice, <laughs> right. like Martin Luther was doing sure. that and caring for orphans and widows. So um, I'm all for diversifying our bookshelves, if that's what decolonization means. Mm. But um, I don't throw the baby out with the bathwater because yeah. the reformers still have a lot to teach us as well. And none of us get it. Don't you think we will look back on this moment in time and as much as we want to get like everything perfect, we're not. Don't you think we'll look back yes. and there will be a critique of us? Yes. You know, I know as a parent, I'm looking at my three kids and I'm like, there will be a critique as much as I'm trying to repair and restore and redeem what was passed down to me there, the redemption continues. If not, there's no need for Jesus. Amen. You know? And so I, I just... We've got to let ourselves struggle and we've, we've, and yet do it in a way that we can have grace and compassion for many voices at the table, that's you know, right. and that's, that's what feels a little hard right now at the point mm, in time. That's good. I'm curious how, let me think how, to, how I want to word this. So your mom is 100% Indian. Your dad is... 100% white guy with Germanic and English and lots of other things that white people have. How how did they parent you through this? Like, were they on the same page? Did they bring different perspective? Was your dad totally not into it? Like, talk just as a dad, I'm wondering what those conversations were like at your dinner table <laughs> of navigating multicultures as a, as a family. For sure, for sure. Oh man, you know, in some ways, I feel like, on the one hand, I would I grew up in a traditional Indian home because my mother's Indian values definitely dominated our our childhood. Uh, you know, things like 
uh, coming home, helping with helping with cooking the Indian food, and then studying. Um, I wasn't allowed to talk to boys. I wasn't allowed to touch boys, hugging boys. Youth group activities that had boys involved was like 50-50 if I was allowed to go. Uh, Friday nights and the weekends were for studying. Uh, mm. Summers were, were... So Indian families believe in public education, absolutely. But then they also like homeschool their kids on the side. Like they yeah. do both. That was my childhood. So uh, the, the weekends and the summers, I was doing math and reading drills. I'd go and visit my Indian cousins. We would do math drills at their house. Like, wow. There was no like, oh, let's go. Like I didn't go to water parks growing up. You know? <laughs> like, I was like, what, what is Six here. Flags? I don't know what Six math Flags games. is. That's, that's what like non-Indian kids go to. Uh, and and so uh, on the one hand, um, that just sort of those sort of values and perspective, high, high honor society, honoring elders, right. everyone older than me was a was an aunt and an uncle. Um, not so disrespecting your parents is equal to disagreeing with your parents. Uh-huh. And so not being able to be like, I disagree. And here's why, right, uh-huh. which was really hard growing up, because in my white Christian school and my white Christian church, you know, there was all these things about like, what is God's calling in your life? And let's mm. talk about boundaries. Let's talk about <laughs> boundaries, you know, what are healthy boundaries with your parents, healthy boundaries with your, your relatives? And I'm like, I have no concept for this, right? Or even yes. let, let's conflict resolution. Okay, your parents did something that upset you. Here's how you sit down with your parents and address that and ask them to apologize. And I'm like, I would never do that in my past. <laughs> like, <laughs> you, you don't know who my parents are. This doesn't happen in Asian families. And so um, all of those disconnects are there as, as well. And so like growing up and learning, oh, Western Eastern culture, individualistic versus collectivistic, different uh-huh. approaches to time and communication, uh-huh. all of that. Um, sometimes we just don't realize when we're giving advice and we're pastoring mm. even uh, or, or shepherding folks how much our own culture is coming through in well, in, in those ways. That's so, oh, that's so good. And it's so, yeah, it's so enriching just to even be reminded of that as we engage with even different family, family to family, faith community and faith community, parenting styles and we have to, it's not just a style. Sometimes it's a culture. Yeah. Sometimes when we're, you know, at play dates with other families, there's a different culture at play, not just a different style of, yeah. of what you like or what Absolutely. you don't like. Pick and choose. It's like, no, this is how it is. And this is how it's not. So, okay. I want to, I want to get on. Cause I want to, I want to talk about your book. What drew me to having you on this show is that you made a distinct difference on one of your Instagram is either a post or I don't know if you were talking about it, if it was a reel or something like that, but you were talking about the difference between multi-ethnic churches and multicultural churches. And what you were really doing were, was you were, you were calling out many churches who give themselves like pats on the back, like we're so diverse. We are a multi-ethnic church but they're really missing it. And yeah. so talk to us about the difference between being multi-ethnic and being multicultural and why that's important, why multicultural is important to the kingdom. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a great question. Well, a little a little context to this. So 20 years ago, the sociologist Michael Emerson and Christian Smith, they 
published this book called Divided by Faith, in which they basically argued that the evangelical church is just racially divided, you know, that kind of in the vein of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., uh, the the most segregated hour in America is 11 a.m. on Sunday morning. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so they concluded their book with all their data and findings to encourage, challenge uh, the North American Evangelical Church to make the 21st century the century of of multiracial churches, uh, that if we could have diverse leadership, uh, if we could have diverse congregations, we could begin to heal the racial divide. Uh, and what's interesting is that in its 20th anniversary, which was this year, mm-hmm. uh, Michael Emerson and Christian Smith came back and, and, and declared already that that project had failed, that the mm-hmm. multiracial church project had failed. And they argued that what happened from their call is that predominantly white churches read their book, put a few black and brown faces in leadership or on staff, and said, look, we've, we've cured racism. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, but all they did was just tokenize mm-hmm. a, a few black and brown uh, faces and, and, and voices without giving them any sort of decision-making power, without uh, actually listening to their voices, uh, being willing to change the culture of their church. And so this prompted in, in large part the, my, my post because I think it's very important for us to distinguish what it means to be a multi-ethnic church and a multicultural church. Mm-hmm. So I think too often today's churches are saying, let's be multi-ethnic. Like that's mm-hmm. the goal. That's that's what we're, we're seeking for. Multi-ethnic simply means having more than one ethnicity represented in your church um, as opposed to being mono-ethnic, like an all-white church, mm-hmm. an all-black church or, mm-hmm. or, or something like this. But the problem is you can be a multi-ethnic church, but still be monocultural. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a lot of socio-economic reasons for that. You know, if you're a predominantly middle-class or upper-class mm-hmm. church, you, you could have, you know, 75 countries from around the world represented, or, you know, right. what you hear a lot of churches saying, right? They, they talk about, oh, we have all these different countries represented in our church. And yet, if they all live in similar communities, they have a certain similar income, um, they live their lives in a similar way. It's There's usually a whitewashing of culture. It's usually still a majority white culture. I think this is why you have TV shows like Blackish, right? It's yeah. this black family that's become middle class and they're trying to like say, where did our culture go? <laughs> like, yeah. We act sometimes more white than we do black. How do we navigate this? And, and money... Um, mm. money whitewashes culture. Uh, and so it, we, we can't mm. just settle for being a multi-ethnic church. Uh, being multicultural, on the other hand, is creating a space where different values, different traditions, communication styles, perspectives are, are treated equally. Um, and if, if that's really the case, if there are equal cultural views, expressions represented on a Sunday morning, church should be really uncomfortable because <laughs> yeah. there's going to be a lot of difference. Uh, but in being a multicultural church, this means that uh, people of different ethnicities should not only walk into a church on a Sunday morning and see their uh, ethnic heritage represented in leadership and on stage, but actually be able to engage in their culture in meaningful ways, whether mm-hmm. that's through the worship, through the prayers, through the liturgy as a whole, through the sermons, you know, and, and, and so on. So it's it's important to understand the difference between multi-ethnic and multicultural and what really is 
the goal. Multi-ethnic is not the goal. Do you, this is, this may be, I don't know how you'll answer this question. There's, there's no such thing as a bad question. That's what I have to tell myself. Do you think, I've had some friends say, um, who go and attend a black church, they're black friends who attend black church, and there's like, what's wrong with being segregated on a Sunday morning if that's where my culture is celebrated? What's wrong with that? That's a good question. I mean, on the one hand, I think what, it, it, particularly if this is a person of color who's asking that question, um, I do want to certainly advocate for the for the need for mm-hmm. monocultural spaces for healing, um, yeah. you know, for for community, because oftentimes we are isolated in majority white culture and we need to be able to feel like we're not alone. Yeah. Um, and, but I will say this, you know, if we look back at, at the book of Acts and we look at the rise of, of, of the church, um, churches were local. They were local mm-hmm. churches. They reflected their community. They cared for the people in their communities. This is why mm-hmm. in Acts chapter 6, you know, when you have this tension between um, he- Hebrew and, and, and Hellenistic Jews, mm-hmm. um, the church is like, hey, some of the people in our community are being overlooked. We need to make sure our leadership reflects everyone mm-hmm. in our community. So the question is, like, who's in your community? <laughs> like, if if you were in the middle of nowhere, Kansas, and you were, like, this super small town that's predominantly white, be a predominantly white church for mm-hmm. the glory of God because that's your community. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, if you are in an all-black neighborhood – be an all-black church because mm-hmm. that's who your community is. But I, I do think that we often fail to realize who our neighbors are. Yeah. It's not just the cities that are diverse. The suburbs are equally as diverse as yeah. a lot of immigrants. Absolutely. Um, you know, there's, there's the reversal of white flight taking yeah. place with gentrification happening where more poor black and brown folks are being uh-huh. pushed into the suburbs. That's correct. So as local churches, churches being committed to local um, ministry, who are our neighbors, and our church mm-hmm. should reflect that. Mm-hmm. Good things to think about, too, even in terms of church partnerships. And I think of like the Korean church, I think of churches that are um, housed within larger churches, like a, a First Baptist church might have, uh, you know, a, the Chinese church that might meet in there on mm-hmm. Sunday mornings. And it's a great thing to even think about partnerships and exposure and how you can bring a multicultural awareness if if your church is predominantly one doing some cross-cultural um you know partnerships could be just really an incredible thing um yes okay so what does it take to decenter whiteness when it comes to pursuing the kingdom for the glory of God. Why is it important to decenter whiteness? What does that term even mean to you? Yeah, well, I think if we go back to scripture, uh, the, the, the biblical vision of the church that we should be looking to is Revelation 7, uh, verses 9 and 10 in particular, where we see people of every tongue, tribe, and nation around the throne of God worshiping together, uh, which I think is incredibly powerful because if they're worshiping in their own tongue, (laughs) 
This is not just like people all in one language worshiping God. This is a multilingual、mm. choir of worship.、Mm-hmm. Uh, and and、uh, you know, pair that with Revelation 21, where you talk, where you see the kings with all their splendor entering into the new Jerusalem.、Mm. And what does that mean for the kings to be entering in with all their splendor? On the one hand, it's talking about their riches, their, <laughs> their、mm. earthly glory, but it's also talking about the beauty of their cultures. They're bringing.、Mm. The richness of their culture, their cultural clothing,、mm-hmm. cultural、um, artifacts, and all of that into the New Jerusalem. And so、um, I think it's important to understand that the, the eschatological vision of the new heavens and new earth, in that vision, we retain our cultural identities.、Mm-hmm. Uh, that cultural identities are not just a, a result of the fall, that they're not just part of the curse of Tower、yeah. of Babel or all those other sort of misinterpretations, but we were made. As cultural image bearers, that God's heart、uh, was for a multi ethnic body from the very beginning, and that、mm-hmm. that's going to continue throughout all eternity. So, if that's the vision, no culture should be centered in, in, in church. And, and, and I say that because you're absolutely right. On the one hand, white culture shouldn't be centered. But on the other hand, we shouldn't just try to replace white culture and, and elevate, you know,、yeah, substitute it with just. Solely black culture or、uh-huh. just solely Asian or solely Latino culture.、Mm-hmm. That's, that's just as limiting.、Yeah. Uh, if we're truly committed to decentering any culture,、um, you know, so, any, any, anyways, decentering whiteness, I think,、uh, man, that's, that's a whole, <laughs> that's a whole thing. But I, I'm glad that you mentioned it because、uh, I, what, what I say, particularly to my white brothers and sisters,、um, Because that, that can feel so guilt ridden, that can feel so shame filled, like we're trying to decenter them as, as human beings. And that's not what it is. I think it's understanding certain power dynamics,、mm-hmm. um, understanding certain hierarchies of, of, of placing white, white peoples as superior in, in their、mm-hmm. lifestyles and viewpoints、uh, over black and brown folks.、Um, so just wanting to like, s- separate those two things out. We're not trying to decenter.、Sure. People who identify with you know, Anglo European identity,、yes. um, but, but trying to make space for all at the table together. Absolutely. I think it's important, and I think that、um, there's so much just inherent that、um, not even thinking about, hey, when I go to the store, I'm going to be able to find a foundation you know, as a young girl that matches my skin tone. I never had to think about my whiteness, it was assumed. Because I was in a white, predominantly white culture, even if, even if my school was diverse, my whiteness was still centered because it, it was, you know, majority money, majority power、um, was held by white folks. And so I think that even that assumption of not even thinking about, not even having to think about your skin. Yeah. Is a way that and, and denotes how we can assume that that privilege,、um, without even being aware of it, is, is there. And so、right. it's, I think it's, it's really important.、Um, and when you talk about decentering it, it really, I think I go back to even the census stuff of just saying, hey, just make sure you understand like white isn't a race. Who are you? Where do you come from? Where'd your grandparents,、yes. great grandparents, how'd you get here?、Um, and that's so important. It's been, it's, and that's one way for me, I think, to decenter just skin 
and, mm-hmm. and ethnicity and it, it to mean more of heritage and culture and not to be ashamed of that. I don't have to be yes. ashamed. I can actually embrace where I come from. Um, so you say in the book, in your book, Becoming All Things, that we all need to learn what it means to adapt and transform ourselves to better love and serve the people around us. It's not just for the overseas missionaries. It's, for, it's the call for every Christian. I so resonated with this because what does, why did you write this book about becoming all things, adapting, transforming ourselves? Because we do see missionaries, we see the church training missionaries to adapt and transform to, to cultures, but we're not necessarily doing that here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think... Too often we st- we still see America as this like white country, and so mm. like to co- to connect or engage with other cultures means going overseas, right? Uh, but but we are a multicultural, globalized uh, society where the nations the, the nations are here, the nations are in our you know in in our communities, in our backyards, mm. uh, and so um, it's not just you know this special calling for some folks to be able to learn how to connect uh, with people who are different from us. That's the calling for all Christian. Uh, and, and, and to learn how to, you know, to, to actually, the, the reason why I even started this journey of writing Becoming All Things and, and, and um, basing off of it, 1 Corinthians 9 verses 19 through 23 was, this was a, this is a book, First Corinthians was a book I'd read many times. Um, those verses even I'd read many times. But I'm, I'm sure you guys have had that experience where you've gone back and read a passage in Scripture and it just hits you anew mm-hmm. for the first time. And you're like, wait, what? <laughs> what is this saying? Uh, that, that was my experience with First Corinthians 9 because in verse 20 it says, the Apostle Paul says, to the Jew I became like a Jew. Yeah, And I thought, what? in the world is this what is he talking about he is a jewish man why is paul as a jewish man needing to become like a jew uh and i start as i started to like pull out the commentaries and read the scholarship i i started to understand that what paul is saying is very provocative he's mm. saying that even back then in the first century world that the jewish people were not a monolith uh, that you know, he himself was a Pharisee. He's part of the educated elite, uh, but there was also Sadducees, and Pharisees and Sadducees butted heads on a lot of things, including different theological positions. Uh, but there was also Essenes, uh, you know, people of the land, the Zealots, right, the political mm-hmm. activists of mm-hmm. the day. And Paul is saying, I am just one type of Jewish person, uh, and, and and you even think about the diaspora Samaritans, bicultural mm-hmm. folks, mm-hmm. Uh, and he's declaring that for each Jewish person he meets he's going to see them as a unique individual uh, and learn to adapt how he speaks and and behaves to connect mm. with them for the sake of the gospel and i thought well and he goes on to say the same thing about gentiles greeks non-jewish people and i thought if that's true in the first century world <laughs> how much more true should that be today uh when 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 we you know black Black people in America, African Americans, Asian Americans, you know, white folks, quote unquote, mm-hmm. we are not monoliths. We are mm-hmm. each 
unique individuals with our own cultural stories, Mm -hmm. uh, ethnic heritages. You know, you could line up 10 Indians Mm. Next, you know, me and nine others. Yeah. And we'd all be vastly different. Sure. Uh, which is why I like to say I am like all Indians, like some Indians and like no other Indian. Right. Um, and so for each person that we meet here in America, we need to be able to see the unique individual mm. to be able to ask those questions like, what's your story? Um, and, and, and just honor them for who they are as opposed to trying to place any categories or assumptions or stereotypes about them. And if we as Christians can do that, or or I should say, we need to understand that as Christians, this is part of how we advance the kingdom. This is part of our biblical witness. This is Mm -hmm. part of how we show love to the people Mm -hmm. around us. Uh, There's there's deep-seated spiritual implications for engaging with people in these ways. So how do we we adapt? adapt and not appropriate or not feel that we have to especially if we're a minority uh, somehow to to be all things as following Christ would mean assimilation right how do we how do we not lose ourselves and how do we adapt for the sake of the gospel but not either appropriate or feel the need to assimilate? Yeah, great, <laughs> great questions. I feel like there's a lot of people that are at that stage wrestling yeah. with that question. Um, yeah, so I'll say briefly, on the one hand, what we see in Jesus, what we see in the Apostle Paul and others, is that they are proud of their God-given cultural identities, and they're able to adapt and connect with different people. So it's not an either or. Mm. Um, and, and, and that's something that I advocate for too. That I can be proud of my God-given cultural identity as an Indian American woman, not hide that or be ashamed of that, and still adapt um, yeah. with other folks. And I think part of how we do that is just learning when to keep our mouth shut. Right. <laughs> I, I think... We, we all like to talk a lot. We all like to share our opinions and, and, and center ourselves. And I think we need to do a better job of, of, of being quiet, being readers of the room, studying mm-hmm. the person or the group that we're with, understanding their, their mannerisms, what makes them tick. Um, you know, I think about even just on some surface level things. When I was teaching uh, in, in German and I was in the German department, my German colleagues... Um, you know, we'd be standing just inches from each other's faces talking. Like, mm. there's a different personal mm. boundary <laughs> kind yes. of space. And, like, even in those moments, like, if I had, if someone came up to me to talk to me really close face-to-face and I jumped back, that would be a cultural offense, yeah. right? And so, even though I, as an Indian woman, like, having a man's face that yeah. close to me felt very uncomfortable, right. I was like, no, if, if I step back, I'm, I'm going to communicate something to the other person that could be offensive. And so mm. I, would, I, would, I would choose to sit and stand in that discomfort. So it's things like that is, yeah. is how well do we know the person we're engaging with? How, have we studied them? Have we mm. observed them, their personality? What's their Enneagram right. <laughs> number, right? And we learn these things by asking more questions mm-hmm. and, and speaking less. So I think that's just a very simple first step. Um, second, in terms of appropriation, appropriation in a nutshell is is stealing something from someone else's culture and claiming it as your own without mm-hmm. giving any 
acknowledgement of, of where this artifact or, or practice came from. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the issue of appropriation comes down to who benefits. Yeah. Uh, and this is this is also in First Corinthians, you know, where God where Paul says like everything is possible but not everything is beneficial. Mm. Um, so I, I definitely want to make it clear what we shouldn't resort to is cultural policing, like, oh, you know, you shouldn't wear this um, you know, native cardigan sweater, or you shouldn't buy, uh, you sh- if you're not Mexican, you shouldn't be eating tacos or <laughs> like, right. what, you know, like, we, like Lord, cultural no. policing is not the, <laughs> exactly, it's not the answer. But in terms of appropriation, it comes down to money and mm-hmm. it comes down to who benefits, yeah. right? Are we buying the $4.50 tacos at that new kind of bougie hipster Mm -hmm. restaurant down the street? Or are we going to like a real taqueria that's Mm -hmm. owned by, you know, Latino immigrants Mm -hmm. and supporting them uh, when we want to go eat tacos? Mm. That sort of thing. Who's, who is being benefited Mm. um, from, from our dollars? So Mm. I think that's the conversation we should be having about cultural appropriation. Mm. I love that. And back to what you said about um, being adaptive, for the sake of love and for the sake of the kingdom, if you're if you're a faith, you know, a follower of Christ, um, and I think about the work that we do, and I think this was one of the first uh, real lessons of my theology when we walked into a strip club for the very first time to hand out on Good Friday gift bags and build relationships with women who had mm. been. Um, in the commercial sex industry and who were actively in it and bouncers and DJs and managers and a lot of people who were on the margins in our own community, who our kids were sharing school with their kids. Our, we were in the same grocery stores. We were share. we were, you know, paying the same, you know, taxes, our tax dollars were going to the same things, but somehow you know, middle and upper class benefited more from many of them who were living in poverty. And, I think one of the most, one of the gifts that this work has asked of us is how much are you willing to lay down? You know, and when I think about constantly being asked by God, by the Spirit, to lay down your way, what you think is the fix, what you think is right, and to have a posture of learning and say, what what do you think? What do you want? What do you see? Um, Rahab was one of the first passages that God had really laid on our radar early on. And the passage from Joshua 2 talks about how Rahab lived in the city wall. And when I looked at that, and when I learned of her, her entrepreneurial skills and the way that she was using the little that she had to benefit her entire family um, and how her eyes positioned even in the city walls, like being a part of this community and somehow still marginalized by it. It was like, whoa, what has changed this many years forward? You know, at the time in 2004 that I was reading that, like you said, a scripture that hits you in a whole new way. And you're just like, man, nothing Nothing has changed for this woman. We may have made some progress in some areas, but here she is in a strip club in Waco, Texas, and is still battling the same marginalization and yet is so proximate to every solution 
that we would need. Like she's got the keys, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And so I love, I love that invitation to adapt, to be all things to all people, not meaning that you're the savior or that you're the hero, but you're actually the one who is able to lay your way down. Yes. To learn from another way. Yes. Absolutely. And I think, Emily, I'm so glad you brought that up because I think this is where there is an intersection of, um, you know, people who have suffered uh, abuse, sexual abuse, um, people who are marginalized because of race. Mm -hmm. uh, Because I think oftentimes people outside of those experiences come in and say, oh, you know, let's let's, um, set up the new nonprofit or the new organization or even the new church, you know, Mm -hmm. like let's come and help these people as the outsiders. Uh, and, and what my husband and I like to say is like, okay, if we really want to support local, like that's a big buzz thing right now. If we really want to support local, instead of using our money to create something new where the profits are going to benefit us, Mm. you know, even though we're saying, Mm -hmm. oh, look how, look how woke we are for helping all these (laughs) people. Why don't we actually give our money to real local, you know, community members, real Uh, racialized minorities who are marginalized, black and brown folks um, who could start their own after-school uh, programs, their own music schools, or their own uh, you know entrepreneurial type ventures. Like mm-hmm. you're saying, you can help the the Rahabs of today, mm-hmm. empower them to do the work in their community because one, they know how to contextualize best to their context. That's right. uh, but then two, uh, our money is actually benefiting those in need as opposed to benefiting ourselves. So I think in terms of what does it mean to support local, which is a big buzzword today, we need to also think about, you know, that as mm. well. Yeah. Survivor leadership is, is, um, very important. And I, and I don't, I don't know that we always saw that. Um, and I don't, I think that this whole process has been one for us of, of, learning and relearning and listening and then listening again. And, um, yeah, but yeah, but yeah, where the, where is the power who's benefiting is, is huge. Um, okay. What, okay. These are questions I want to ask as we kind of wrap up. Cause I wrote these down. I didn't ask you this earlier, but I'm sure you'll be able to tell me what is your favorite thing about your what is something that you would say, this is my favorite thing about my Indian heritage. And this is my favorite thing about my English, uh, German heritage. Mm, That's a great question, man. My favorite thing. Uh, I, I I could say a lot. I'll, I'll I'll say what some of the, the, some of the things I'm just the most proud of as an Indian is, is, is our food. I think, if if food could be a love language or if food is a language <laughs> that's my love language like it, you know like we become friends i'm like emily brett come over to my house i'm gonna make you some indian food like oh, that's my yes. love language and i think that's also born from my indian culture of, of hospitality and mm-hmm. um just living life around the table together mm-hmm. uh and so um you know my comfort food i think someone else asked me once you're like what are your top five favorite foods and i'm like well all five are gonna be Indian yeah. <laughs> you know uh, so just that's something that I just love about my Indian culture um, you know chole bature and puris mm. and a mango lassi I could okay. eat that every meal but I won't because <laughs> it wouldn't be very healthy uh, <laughs> but it's delicious very rich uh, and and I'll say is in terms curry, of is, 
Is curry really not a spice? It's really not a spice. I'm looking at your Instagram right now, and it says that. (laughs) (laughs) Curry is simply a word that means a spice mixture. Mm. So every Indian dish has a curry in it, but every Indian dish has a different curry because it's a different spice mixture, if you will. And curry, honestly, is a word that like more non-Indians use than Indians, Mm. if Mm -hmm. that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I think it's become this popularized anglicized uh term and so yeah i mean that's one of the questions right people are like oh you're indian do you like curry and i'm like yeah. well i like indian food uh-huh. <laughs> that's what you're asking uh but you know yeah like cumin seeds and mm-hmm. and uh, turmeric and chili pepper mm-hmm. and cardamom and cinnamon and like every dish is going to have a different combination of that and okay. that's what we call curry so Okay, favorite so thing. I love the the kitchens that have like the little curry powder. Yeah. I'm like, what's in that? Let, let me that see your my, bottle. What's in your curry my, powder that bottle? That is my kitchen. <laughs> Listen, that is my kitchen. I am Anglo, and that is my kitchen. I but I will say that I have a recipe, and it takes a lot longer to cook. But it's from a friend of mine who um, n- local Indian, and I don't remember if it was north. I think it was northern India, but a missionary and sent it to us and said, you have got to make this curry. Well, it takes like hours. I Mm -hmm. mean, it's, and it's all the ingredients and some of them I cannot find except if I order online, but it is my daughter and I, it is our favorite curry. So when my friend down the streets, whose parents were missionaries, when they make it from Jay Paul, I'm like, yes, this is Jay Paul's recipe and it's the best curry. And so we'll always bum food if she makes that version because we love it so much. But no, my kitchen, I got the little spice rack girl. (laughs) I got the little bottle (laughs) and it's probably McCormick. Who knows? It's probably terrible. McCormick. I love it. Well, (laughs) since we're on the topic too, the word chai means tea, right? So when somebody in India asks you, do you want chai? They're literally just asking if you want tea, right? Mm-hmm. So the whole chai tea latte uh-huh. thing. I mean, you're just, you're saying tea tea, right? So yeah. just a little <laughs> FYI. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay. Favorite thing from your German English roots? Yeah. So on my dad's side, um, his his whole family for generations has been farmers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so... Uh, you know, just pe- being people of the land, um, being very connected to the land. Um, that's something I learned from my from my dad's side, um, something I think is very special about that part of my identity. And then kind of a second but random fact is that on my dad's side, his ancestors have been praying, have been playing the violin for ah. centuries. Uh, we have we have a picture from around 1800s, a black and white picture of a great, 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 great grandfather, mm. um, pl- you know, holding the violin and playing. And mm. every generation that I know of has played the violin, including myself. Uh, I now own that violin. Uh, awesome. It's currently in the shop because it has a little crack. Wow. Um, but it's, it's so special to be able to play this violin and to know on my dad's side, it's the Linton family, to know that it's passed through so many Linton hands. Mm. Uh, and now my six-year-old is learning um, how to play the violin. So that's kind of a special wow. tradition on from, from my dad's side of the family. That's cool. I would say that resonates in my lineage as well. I think uh, for both of us, we had grandparents, great-grandparents, great-great-grandparents who were farmers 
And that's what they did because we're not over here because we were royalty in England or Scotland. My heritage is a Scottish heritage and Scottish English. And we were the poor. Mm-hmm. We, we were the poor class, which is why our parents migrated uh, to, you know, the States. And yeah. music, so mine's guitar and farming. All of our grandparents knew how to grow their, grow their own gardens, work the land. Um, so that's really that's interesting. Awesome. Yeah, really, really interesting. Fried chicken and fried yeah. chicken. You, fried chicken. <laughs> and they did know how to fry some chicken. That's good. We can fry chicken for you. Um, you know, okay, where can people find your book? Where should we visit you? Give us all the information on how we can connect with you, Michelle. Sure, sure. I think my book is probably anywhere where books are sold, wherever people's favorite, you know, places, whether you support corporate like Amazon or your favorite indie bookstore, um, Target and other places. Uh, but so I have a website, michellemireyes.com it's just my name michellemireyes.com i have a lot of fun freebies on there i have a um, a pdf of dinner conversation cards which could be used like with parents and children or like as a church small group just to facilitate thoughtful conversations um, about connecting across cultures together i've got a study guide that could pair with you know if you're using my book as a book club Uh, and the other fun thing is over the summer i worked with zondervan our our publisher to create a teaching kit. It's a four-part mm-hmm. teaching kit that um, many pastors now have utilized as a sermon series in their in their churches. Um, different schools like uh, Wheaton, Moody, uh, Biola, Gordon Conwell have utilized as a four-part teaching curriculum, uh, which has been really really neat. Um, so all of that is for free on my website. That's awesome. Uh, and um, yeah. I'm on I'm on a lot of the regular socials, right? Facebook, uh, Instagram. My handle is Michelle Amy Reyes, and on Twitter, Dr. Michelle Reyes. Favorite Austin restaurant? Ooh, well, my mom originally is from the state of Gujarat, so we are the Patels, uh, and Austin is mostly South Indian, but we have found Bombay Express, owned by Patels. Ah, oh. love it. Highly, highly recommend Bombay Express. Okay. (laughs) Bombay Express. Okay. And where is that in East Austin or where is it located? It's I think it's in North Austin. But it's one of those places, right, where like you have the menu, but then we go in and we're like, Hey, we want this. Can you make this? And they're like, Oh, of course, of course. It's one of those places. I'm like, That's the best. Wow. Wow. Local. I love that. I love it. Well, Mm -hmm. thank you so much for joining us. And I look forward to connecting with you since you're just right down i35 i hope we get to meet in person soon and i hope you and your family stay healthy and well and just blessings to your church and all the work that you're doing and the research that you're doing and how informed it is for today we are so thankful thank you thank you it's just been honored to chat with you both emily and brett thanks for having me you bet thanks for joining us we hope this episode brought some light to your own story and hope for your journey Make sure to subscribe and leave a comment. For more info on our work, visit JesusSaidLove.com. Until next time. Share the love.